Welcome to OCS Field Guide, the podcast that helps you study smarter for the OCS exam. Well, welcome back to OCS Field Guide. In this episode, we're going to discuss research and statistics. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why would we start the podcast off with the most exciting topic possible? Aren't we going to run out of fun and exciting material if we're already doing research and statistics in the first full episode? Well, don't worry. There is plenty of fun to come. In reality, we're starting with research and statistics because this is one area that a lot of prep courses and material neglect. And a lot of therapists who didn't pass their OCS exam last year complained that this area was one of their lowest scoring sections. Last year, the average score in the section called Critical Inquiry for Evidence-Based Practice was a 71, which made it the second lowest scoring section of the OCS exam. Remember that a passing overall score was around 70%, so about half of exam takers were scoring below passing on this section of the exam. In other words, this is an important section where a lot of people struggle. So we're going to break it down for you up front. I'm going to cover the most important material in two episodes. In this episode, we're going to cover some research basics, and then we'll talk about some statistics and values that you simply must memorize to pass the OCS exam. If you feel confident in your grasp of research basics, you can skip forward to minute seven to get to the more intermediate material and the values you need to know. Next episode, we're going to talk about some psychological principles of research that might pop up as exam questions and that most research classes in PT school don't spend much time discussing. But first, the basics. If the Board of Physical Therapy Specialties is going to label you a specialist, they want to see that you will be able to read, interpret, and apply research correctly. The first part of the process is distinguishing between good and bad research. So the OCS exam is going to do its best to make sure you understand the difference between good evidence and bad evidence. Not all evidence is created equal. The clinical practice guidelines contain summaries of how individual articles are ranked in terms of strength of evidence. The levels are designated with Roman numerals, starting with the highest strength of evidence, as follows. Numeral 1. Evidence obtained from high-quality diagnostic studies, prospective studies, or randomized controlled trials. Level 2. Evidence obtained from lesser-quality diagnostic studies, prospective studies, or randomized controlled trials, e.g., weaker diagnostic criteria and reference standards, improper randomization, no blinding, or less than 80% follow-up. Level 3 case-controlled studies or retrospective studies. Level 4, case series. And finally, level 5, expert opinion. It is possible that you will be given some examples of research studies and asked to identify the highest or lowest quality study. For the most part, it's easy to remember that a high-quality randomized controlled trial falls into the highest tier of research. What might be a little trickier is to remember that a high-quality retrospective study is only level 3 evidence, which is lower than a lesser-quality prospective study, which is level 2 evidence. 
It also might be tricky to remember that expert opinion is the lowest level, which means a case series is considered higher quality evidence than an expert opinion paper. All right, next let's cover types of variables. Generally, in an experimental design, researchers are tracking two types of variables, dependent variables and independent variables. You could be given a research design and asked to identify which variable is which. So remember that the independent variable is what the researchers decide to manipulate in the study, and the dependent variable is the outcome they're measuring. The outcome depends on the effectiveness of the independent variable. So if researchers are comparing the effectiveness of, uh, let's say, manual therapy to the effectiveness of ultrasound at reducing a patient's pain, the independent variable is the treatment type, either manual therapy or ultrasound, and the dependent variable is the patient's pain level. The pain level depends on the effectiveness of the treatment. Next, let's talk p-values. In a research design like this, where researchers are comparing two or more groups, they're going to use p-values. Basically, a p-value tells you the probability that the differences you're seeing between the groups occurred due to chance. So in the example we just mentioned, if ultrasound reduced pain by four points on the numeric pain rating scale and manual therapy reduced pain by five points, we need to know if the difference between treatments is due to chance or if manual therapy is really more effective than ultrasound. Let's say we run our analysis and find that the p-value is 0.09. This basically means that there is a 9% chance the difference between groups is due to chance. So researchers have to decide how certain they want to be that the results are not due to chance. They almost always settle on 95% certainty, which means any p-value lower than 0.05 is considered statistically significant. Now, the point at which the researchers decide the results are statistically significant is called the alpha level. So if the alpha level is set to 0.05, any p-value lower than 0.05 is considered statistically significant. If the researchers decide to set the alpha level at 0.03, then the p-value would have to be lower than 0.03 to be considered statistically significant. Now, if I'm a mean OCS test item writer, I could propose a research scenario where the alpha level is set to 0.03 and give you a p-value of 0.04 and ask you if the results are statistically significant. The answer would be no, because the p-value was not lower than the alpha level. But hopefully you're familiar enough with research that the last few minutes have just been reviewed. So let's get into some more intermediate concepts. Type 1 and Type 2 Errors These are concepts that usually make sense when you read about them, but by the third hour of the OCS exam, the two errors start to blend together. We just discussed the p-values, or the probability that the results we obtained were due to chance. But even with a very low p-value, there's still a chance that the results were a fluke or maybe the result of bad research methods. 
In this case, the researchers might conclude that there is a significant difference between groups when, in reality, there isn't. This is called a type 1 error. This is sometimes referred to as backing a loser. A type 2 error occurs if the researchers do not find a statistically significant difference between their groups, when, in reality, one group is different from the other. This is sometimes called missing a winner, and it's often due to having too few subjects in the study. Since there's not enough data, researchers are unable to detect the difference, even though a difference does exist. So if you're asked a question on the exam about how to decrease the chances of committing a type 2 error, you want to increase the number of subjects in the study. Now I just mentioned the terms backing a loser and missing a winner. These phrases will help you remember which error is which. Imagine a scoreboard where one team has one point and the other team has two points. If you picked the team with one point, you backed the loser. In research terms, your paper claimed an intervention was effective when in reality, it is not. It's a loser. It has the lower score, one point. You committed a type one error. In contrast, if you failed to pick the team with two points, you missed a winner. In research terms, you said an intervention is not effective, when in reality, it is. You missed a winner. You failed to pick the team with two points. You committed a type 2 error. So in the middle of the exam, when you have to remember which error is which, imagine your scoreboard and remember the phrases backing a loser, that's a type 1 error, and missing a winner a type 2 error. Now we're going to get into some values that you're going to have to memorize. If I was studying for this exam again, I would bookmark this portion of this podcast and listen to it over and over again to help myself remember these values. First, we'll talk about effect sizes. In the imaginary research example we've been using, Let's pretend the researchers found a statistically significant difference between manual therapy and ultrasound. Let's say they found that manual therapy was better at reducing pain. A clinical specialist's next question would be, how much better? That's what the effect size tells us. It is very likely that you will have to interpret an effect size on this exam. The question might describe a research scenario and then inform you that the effect size was found to be 0.6. How large or how small of an effect size is that? Here are the effect size values that you need to remember. 0.8 and up is a large effect size. 0.5 up to 0.7999 is a moderate effect size. 0.2 up to 0.4999 is a small effect size, and anything below 0.2 is a trivial effect size. So your cutoffs are 0.8 and up for large, at least 0.5 for moderate, at least 0.2 for small, and anything lower than 0.2 is trivial. I'm going to say that one more time. Your cutoffs are 0.8 and up for large, at least 0.5 for moderate, at least 0.2 for small, and anything lower is trivial. So in the example above, if the research found an effect size of 0.6, then we could say 
the effect size for manual therapy on pain is moderate. Let's move on to test reliability. When we look at a test or measure, we want to know that we're going to get approximately the same result each time we take it. Interrater reliability means that several different clinicians will all get the same result. Intrarater reliability means that the same clinician will get the same result when performing the test multiple times on the same person. Remember, the internet connects multiple listeners to the same podcast, so interrater reliability involves multiple clinicians performing the same test. For the OCS exam, you will need to know how to interpret reliability values. The most common measure of reliability is Cohen's kappa. Cohen's kappa, which looks like a small uppercase K, runs on a scale from 0 to 1. 0 represents no reliability, that you might as well just flip a coin, and 1 represents perfect reliability, that the result is going to be the same when performed on the same individual every time. Now, the cutoff values for Cohen's kappa vary a little bit depending on your source. You might say they're unreliable, but these are generally good cutoffs to remember. Zero means no better than chance. Less than 0.4 indicates poor reliability. 0.4 to 0.6 indicates fair reliability. 0.6 to 0.75 indicates good reliability, greater than 0.75 indicates excellent reliability, and 1 is perfect reliability. So again, the cutoffs are less than 0.4 for poor, 0.4 to 0.6 for fair, 0.6 to 0.75 for good, and greater than 0.75 for excellent. Let's use a real-world example. A study in 1990 by Muir, McGregor, and Schutt examined interrater reliability of sacroiliac motion palpation tests for sacroiliac dysfunction. So they were looking at special tests like the Letts test, which is also called the Stork test, or the Standing Forward Flexion test. They examined chiropractic students in their final year of school before and after one year of clinical experience, and they also examined more experienced chiropractors. They found that the interrater reliability for chiropractic students ranged from a kappa coefficient of 0 to 0.3. So how reliable is sacroiliac motion palpation testing for chiropractic students? Where do these values fall on the scale I just gave you? Remember that less than 0.4 is poor reliability, and 0 is no better than chance. So the reliability for chiropractic students was poor to no better than chance. Now, when the researchers examined the experienced chiropractors, they found kappa values of 0 to 0.167. So how does that compare to the students? That's even worse, but still falls in the poor to no better than chance category. And can I just take a second to point out that this has some very serious implications for all of us in the clinic doing motion palpation testing of the SI joint. But we'll get more into that when we cover the SI joint later on. Anyway, moving on to our last list of numbers, likelihood ratios. So we've talked about effect sizes 
which are usually used in research that examines interventions. And we've talked about reliability, which is looking at how effectively clinicians can get consistent results from a measure. Likelihood ratios tell you what to do with positive or negative test results. A positive likelihood ratio tells you how much you should increase your suspicion of a certain condition based on a positive test result. A negative likelihood ratio tells you how much you should decrease your suspicion of a condition based on a negative test result. Positive likelihood ratios are going to be larger than 1. Negative likelihood ratios are going to be smaller than 1. Here are my simplified cutoff values. For positive likelihood ratios, anything greater than 10 indicates a large shift in probability towards a diagnosis. Anything from 5 to 10 indicates a moderate shift in probability towards a diagnosis. And anything less than 5 indicates a small shift in probability all the way down to no change at 1. For negative likelihood ratios, anything less than 0.1 indicates a large shift in probability away from a diagnosis. Anything from 0.1 to 0.2 indicates a moderate shift in probability. Anything above 0.2 indicates a small shift in probability, with a value of 1 indicating no change. Again, for positive likelihood ratios, greater than 10 is large, 5 to 10 is moderate, and less than 5 is small. For negative likelihood ratios, less than 0.1 is large, 0.1 to 0.2 is moderate, and larger than 0.2 is small. So as an example, Laslett's SI joint pain clinical prediction rule has a positive likelihood ratio of 4.16. How much should our suspicion shift toward SI joint pain if the cluster is positive? 4.16 is a small shift in probability according to the scale that I just gave you, even though it's close to the moderate cutoff. The same clinical prediction rule has a negative likelihood ratio of 0.12. So if the cluster is negative, how should our suspicion against SI joint pain be affected? 0.12 is a moderate negative likelihood ratio, even though it's getting close to the 0.1 cutoff for a large negative likelihood ratio. So is Laslett's cluster better for ruling in SI joint pain or ruling it out? Based on these likelihood ratios, it is better at ruling out. So that wraps up my discussion of research-related values that you have to memorize for the OCS exam. Next episode, I'm going to leave the strings of numbers behind and talk about some psychological features of human research that we, as PTs, don't usually talk about, but that could very well show up as OCS exam questions. Thanks for listening to OCS Field Guide. Don't forget to subscribe and then head to physiofieldguide.com for practice questions and more resources.